Well, good morning. As you can see, I'm missing the class in my act, or in our act. Lee is uh, down in Ann Arbor right now meeting with doctors, and uh, this morning was baby Felix's doctor's visit, his first visit to the hospital in Ann Arbor, to Mott Children's Hospital, which is an amazing, amazing children's hospital. And so she called to see if we could get a reschedule, because of course he shows up just the one week before we're here, and right in the middle of the week is the doctor's visit. But they would have had to bump us to like the 10th or 11th of August, and we want to help him get moving along with the surgery. So Ellen gave us permission for one of us to miss. <laughs> Got to check with Ellen, you know. And so, so Lee took Elvira. the Elvira. <laughs> Elvira. <laughs> so Lee and Felix headed home yesterday late afternoon and because his appointment was this morning. She'll, they'll be back this afternoon, but I think that he even had to not eat after dinner because he was going to have some anesthesia, so they're really going to probe and check and see. The, the big lump on his face is, um, it's basically all fluid, but it's brain fluid, actually, because when he was born, the, the opening behind his nasal cavity didn't seal, and so that's what that is, and you know, and so they'll be doing, they'll be repairing the hole that was in his skull if it needs it and um, taking care of the big lump and fixing things. Oh, baby Felix, he's from Guatemala and from like the hill, I mean it's a lot of mountains down there, but a very remote part of Guatemala and I think so um, such that We've got, um, like, the, the families, it's through Healing the Children, which is this organization that we've um, been a part of. He's like our ninth baby. Well, the three were teenagers, and that's a whole nother thing. But you just go to baggage claim and pick these kids up <laughs> with an off-duty stewardess who brings them, and it's just been a real blessing for our family. We're only about 15, 20 minutes from that hospital, Mott Children's. And the, hospi the children's hospital... Um, in Grand Rapids, DeVos, yeah, they, um, they also do Healing the Children Kids. Yeah, um, he's our ninth. Yeah. Yeah, is this a good time? <laughs> and we, we're their family while they're here. Yeah, so get them to their appointments and take care of them. And without the church, it would be just so much harder. And it's just been awesome. And you know, there's people in our neighborhood who aren't so sure about that Jesus stuff, but they are sure interested in baby Sarah or baby Esmeralda or baby Felix, you know, and they want to, yeah, it's a, it's a door opener. It sure is. Yeah. And to, can you imagine? I know. Keep Felix's mom in your prayers. I guess she's 40, and Felix has a 17-year-old brother, or half-brother, or whatever it'd be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know how it's sort of a reverse L shape? It's in the southern, southern western side is where it is. And a lot of these families don't even have the money to travel to Guatemala City or whatever the airport city is. So um, it's just been a neat thing. And, I, and he is so prayed up, thanks to all of you, that... Um, it just is in a, a good place. We had one little boy that um, actually died after surgery, 
Um, they couldn't stabilize him. He came for heart surgery. He's a one-year-old. Um, but the goal is to get him fixed up and sent home. Uh, generally, it's, we've had a fair number of heart babies, and that's about three months usually, um, which was what they said Felix would be, but then his paperwork said it might be six months. So we've had um, a couple five-month length, ten years. Yes and no. Lee would say absolutely not. Because <laughs> she is the primary caregiver, and the whole goal is to send them back to their families and so that they can live you know, as full a life as possible. And so you go into it knowing that there's this family there. Um, and interesting for baby Francisco, who's the one that died, he was one year old, and he was the only one that we've had from an orphanage. And he was in the process of being adopted by the head of the orphanage. Um, and, and he died, and that was awful. Um, they pro, pro bono, yes, they'll take a certain number of cases a year, and, and they're a teaching hospital, so it's a, an opportunity for them also. And, and a lot of these things that the babies have, um, American babies have also, but they get them fixed right away. People, um, you know, who have had, had issues, and also for... Um, there, there are more and more surgeries that they can do with mobile clinics and stuff in third world countries. Um, but a lot of them that are more serious, they bring, they can't, they just can't do them. So it's, you know, for that mom, it's this or nothing, you know, and, and the dangers and the problems that come with whatever the issues might be. So it's really humbling and a huge joy and exhausting. Um, but what else are we supposed to be doing, you know? It's like you get to do mission work right here at home, in a way. And uh, it's, it, our first little girl um, was, she was part in, like, East Indian and part African and from Guyana in South America. And um, it was just so funny learning how you care for, like, African hair. Because you'd wash it every day and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And... <laughs> and, and um, so African-American women that would see the baby would say, oh, she looks just like my daughter. And, and finally Lee said, well, can you help me with her hair? And she's like, come here, honey. You know, and they'd go down to the women of color aisle to the stuff. And it was just, it's just been such a learning experience for us. So um, anyway, it's just been uh, a huge privilege for us to get to have these babies. One little girl was with us when she was 14, and that was seven years ago, and we're actually helping her get through college um, in Honduras. And there's this um, Catholic Universidad in Olancho, Honduras, and it's $700 a trimester. So we're actually thinking of sending all four of our own children <laughs> to Honduras. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Get them to work on their Spanish a little bit. Oh, there is. Yeah. Yeah. We had one girl from Mali, Africa, who spoke Bambara, was her natural language, but then French in school. And she was 18, but she had also taken English class. And, and God would have it that the year that she came, our daughter Jillian was in French 5 and was a really good friend.
French speaker for being a pasty American. So that really helped a lot. Yeah. They are in a Christian family when they're here. <laughs> and some of, them, uh, some of them, yes, and some of them, no. And I think Lesty had a little experience with the Catholic Church, but um, when she went back to Honduras, um, they had a strong uh, evangelical youth group. I mean, you're either Catholic or you're evangelical within the Christian circles, basically. And so, um, you know, she has a real living faith. And we've actually stayed in touch with her thanks to Facebook, I mean, they may not have running water, but they've got Facebook. <laughs> and so she found me online. And honestly, we wrote, we write probably three or four messages a week to each other. I mean, she really, she calls me Poppy. And it's just, and she just oozes Jesus. And we got to go down with a Healing the Children person. And Lee's been twice and I've been once. And to watch Lestie minister she's just this beautiful lovely girl and to watch her minister to these other kids with all these problems or no legs or you know hands that don't work and she's braiding their hair and just saying it's going to be okay and it's really been um, awesome to see that so uh, Lestie's now like 21 yeah yeah she was with us when she was 14 the, the young girl, um, Asuma, who came from Mali, Africa, the day after she arrived, the Taliban <laughs> took over the Mali airport and, like, the whole city, um, the capital city of Mali, which you've actually heard of one of the towns in Mali uh, because it's Timbuktu, <laughs> is in Mali, Africa. Like, who knew? And so um, she was with us, and she, it was weird because it was kind of like having a war refugee. You know, but she, um, and she wasn't, we weren't on the news with her, and it was in English anyway, so she didn't, she wasn't fully aware of all that, but she was coming from like a tribal Islam, and she arrived in December, and two weeks after Shrive was Christmas, and um, which, of course, she celebrated with us. I mean, they do what we do, so they go to church, they go to youth group, or Sunday school, nursery, whatever, they go to Bayshore, yeah. <laughs> And it was interesting because Asuma was really bored. And for some dumb reason, the Dexter High School wouldn't let her go to classes. And she, and this is after her surgery, and she had to stay for her appointments to make sure everything went well. Um, and with her, it was that she was born with her bladder on the outside of her body, and this was a second surgery for her. So she had been when she was seven to the U.S., and now when she was 18. And uh, she did get to go and talk to the French class, a couple times, you know, as a show and tell. I don't know. <laughs> and, and so interestingly, though, when she, she would watch videos and find French words, you know, French translations of the Disney videos and things like that, she found the Jesus film, and she found it translated into French. And the Jesus film is simply the Gospel of Luke, verbatim, in a movie form. And it's, it was originally done by Crew, which used to be called Campus Crusade, um, which my wife was on staff with for nine years. Um, and she came up to me when I got home that day and said, Daddy, I received Jesus today. And, um, and this was like a week before she was going back. And she had connection with the Christian organization there, a Catholic priest. And so we we ordered her from Amazon a French Bible 
But like her dad had four wives or something like that kind of thing, you know, and the girls were married when they were 13 or 14 outside of the city or 15 or 16 when they were in the city. And, and so um, that was amazing. You know, it somehow it connected the dots from everything she'd been experiencing that far. So praise God for that. But we don't have any way to communicate with her. I think that's Africa's a whole nother level of poverty. Yeah. Yeah, if she... She would have to be very secret about it. And she had a Catholic priest nearby, so um, I know. Pray for a Suma. Right, yeah, because that's a, a shame thing in the shame-based culture and that family and that religion. It was tribal Islam, so I don't know. Um, you know, it was kind of a mishmash of things. So, yeah, so that's where Lee is this morning. And um, we need to pray because we've got some great stuff to talk about. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this place and this opportunity. God, we thank you for the teachings that are going on all over the campus. And we pray for, uh, we pray thanksgiving that you are God and just what the three-year-olds need and the two-year-olds need and the um, five-year-olds and the elementary kids and the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, Lord Jesus, that you are exactly what every one of us needs, um, no matter how old or young we are. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be fed and encouraged and to grow. And so I ask, Lord, that you would... Um, be with us in this time of study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One thing, the Family Camp Hymn Sing with Debbie Ackerman and Lou Tibbetts is this afternoon, and they've got some, uh, I, he's got the lineup of hymns, and it's all the classics this afternoon if you want to be a part of that. And we, I know um, you bring your Bibles, but I did make sure to run copies of the NIV if you grab this and like to take lots of notes. Um, more than what fits in the margins of your Bible, um, which is uh, one of my challenges. And I'm a doodler, too, so you can doodle. That's how I listen. Well, we talked about how um, we know quite a bit about Philippi because there was a pretty amazing account of how um, Paul arrived in Philippi in um, Acts chapter 16 and how the first person, the first convert, the first European convert that we have recorded in Europe is Lydia, and the seller of purple cloth, likely a wealthy woman, woman who must, uh, probably was a benefactor for Paul and for the mission work and for the ministry going on um, in Philippi and around the world. Um, we talked about how the fact that even though we know so much about Paul, the fact is the other 11 apostles and people beyond them we're also doing what Paul did. It's just none of the rest of them had a biographer like Paul had Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And uh, we talked last week, uh, yesterday, about, um, and I just wanted to make sure I clarified that um, Mark was, was the writings of likely John Mark, who was the translator for Simon Peter. And so Mark was likely the first gospel written. Um, somebody misheard me and thought it, 
I had said Matthew. Um, but Mark was the first one written. He was the translator for Peter. And when Peter died, after making his way to Rome, um, all the Christians freaked out. But Mark remembered, wait a minute. I know these stories. I know and can trans... I've been translating them for years, getting Peter from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And so that's how we have the Gospel of Mark. We talked about how um, Paul did visit Philippi one other time before he went back to Jerusalem where he was arrested and then tried and then tried and tried and then made his way by ship up to Rome where he was under house arrest for the last couple of years of his life. And the amazing attitude that he had as a prisoner chained to the guards, um, being visited by people, being supported by people, caring for the guards, his own captors himself, and how the, even the household of Caesar sent their greetings back to the Philippians. We talked about how Timothy was with him, and we'll get into that a little bit, and how um, Epaphrodites uh, was sent by Philippi, the Philippians, to minister to Paul, how he got sick and um, was going to be sent back, delivering this letter back to the Christ followers in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, where they do not have oysters, even though I really think they do. <laughs> And where um, they, uh, um, so it's in Greece, it's in kind of northern Greece, and you can actually visit the ruins there. Lee and I did it um, two and a half years ago on this Journeys of Fall thing that Asbury Seminary had sponsored, and it was pretty awesome just to see the size of it. And that's been reduced to rubble, and this small band of Christ followers has spread to a third of the earth or more. So we're going to pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And some of these verses, again, are like the tattoo type of verses. They're just so well known. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but in humility considers others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out, look not only for your out, <laughs> each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I want to stop there and talk about the word encouragement, which is the word paraklesis paraclesis, which means comfort. It means encouragement, but it also means comfort. And one of the words for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, meaning the comforter. Wherever you are, in the midst of whatever brokenness, and you feel like you're limping along in your faith walk, in your life, that if you have any encouragement any comfort from being united with Christ, being one with Christ. God is not, I think in our world, people, if they say there's some higher power or God, that it's some neutral force. Because we talked about yesterday how looking from underneath what's going on, and I thought of, I thought of our conversation um, when he was preaching, of there's the lower story, 
of what's going on in our lives. And there's the upper story of how God is guiding us, sort of as looking at the two sides of a, of a um, cross-fit, cross-fit, cross-stitch tapestry. Sorry, I don't, needlepoint, needlepoint. <sighs> to me, it's all like the same thing, you know, like macrame, <laughs> decoupage. Isn't that like all, isn't that all the same thing? Sorry. <laughs> Knitting, right. So, um, um, but, but um, one of the things that Paul talks about is um, make my joy complete by being like-minded. And I want to focus on the idea of like-minded doesn't just mean um, you are all the same. Like-minded has to do more with being guided by your mind. And you know, one of the things that a lot of the counselors that I um, work with or that attend our church, social workers, um, licensed counselors, um, psychologists have talked about is the incredible influx in their practices of people dealing with anxiety, people dealing with anger, people dealing with depression. And so I wanted to ask this question. As you experience your emotions, where are your emotions? Where are they located? We, we all want to say, in our heart, right? But it's really not. Our emotions are in our brains, but our emotions are also, um, they have physiological ramifications for us. And there are, uh, our emotions are not inappropriate. But think of this, the, um, like the emotion of, of anger means there's something wrong and I've got to deal with it right there. And if you go back to, you know, our primordial makeup, um, anger is what helps you get the, the lid off the pickle jar. You know, <clears throat> it, it's not supposed to last longer than that act. Anger means, oh my gosh, there's a snake near my grandkid. I'm going to get that snake or get it away. You know, so it, it brings you to action. But you're, then after about 10 seconds, you know, it fires your adrenaline, it fires your reactions, it fires your response to go forward towards something. It's not meant to be hung on to. Fear. Think of the last time you actually ran full force. Can anybody think of the last time? <laughs> Aha. <laughs> the last time you were afraid... It's supposed to get you out of a situation and last, what, 10 seconds until you're outside of that situation. Paul, by calling us to be like-minded, he's really helping us realize where our responses are and for our, to be like-minded with Christ having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, even within our emotions. And then he talks about um, do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which I think is like the antithesis of social media in so many ways. Even when we post something about someone else, doesn't it feel good when 40 people like it? 
or 80 people like it, or it gets shared eight times or ten times, and how much we start um, feeling better about ourselves, even if it's a noble message that we're trying to communicate, or a Bible verse. Um, I, think, I think it's hard, it's so countercultural um, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And here's Paul saying this from prison. You know, I used to struggle with Paul because so often he says, um, watch what I do and do it. Or he'll say, see how I lived among you, now you live that way. And I'm like, and yet here he's saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And this was really a breakthrough for me with the Pauline epistles, the Pauline letters written by Paul. Because I kind of looked at that as a little bit egotistical or something like that. However, then I taught or was a part of the teaching of my four teenagers to drive. And the easiest thing that I just wanted to say was, okay, do you see how I'm driving? Do it like this. You know, except for the rolling stops. <laughs> but, but imitation is one of the most common ways of learning. Imitation is one of the most common ways of discipling someone. If I'm going to meet with, a, a, I, have, I have four different men's groups that I meet with right now. Uh, I started a 20-something men's group last January because I kept running into these guys that he, had either moved back to Dexter, which is, it's more like a Mayberry town, not like Ann Arbor. You know what I mean? And so everyone said, there's no 20-somethings in Dexter. So don't worry about the fact that you don't have a ton of them coming to your church. But the fact is, they're there. Some of them are simply being smart, saving money, living with their folks. Uh, some of them are trying to figure out what they want to do next. Some of them are working part-time, going to school part-time. And, and at the wellness center that I joined, I was running into them. And so it was like God just laid on my heart to have um, this group of, see if we could get them together for a Bible study, you know, for, for discipling. So much of discipling is, is imitation. And, and that helped me understand where Paul was coming from. Just like Hunter, Jillian, Graham, Joy, drive this way. Just watch how I do it, okay? And, that's, and, and, and all of a sudden, I had a lot more grace toward what Paul was saying. You know, the, this person who uh, beat, whipped, shipwrecked, you know, thrown out of half the towns that he visited um, for the cause of Christ. Um, so he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's so powerful because I think that, um, uh, you know, they talk about proper self-care so much in the clergy. And that is definitely, definitely important. And, and I know I have a tendency toward people-pleasing. Um, 
which is a part of who I am, um, which is a problem that I need to deal with, and I need to let my yes be yes and my no be no. But there's also something to this um, idea of looking out for the interests of others, which means being honest with them. And now I want to... And what Paul is also doing is um, launching us into one of the most um, incredible... uh, They think it was an early hymn. Um, And he's quoting it here, starting in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, a bondservant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me say that again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. Fifteen years ago, I went to this really neat program at Asbury Seminary. Uh, I went to Garrett Seminary um, first, and then I worked for 11 years and then went back to Asbury for this doctorate thing. And there were world-renowned speakers and teaching church conferences, and it was awesome, and Saddleback, and Willow Creek, and Ginghamsburg, and North Point Vineyard, and speakers we got to interview like Haddon Robinson, and Calvin Miller, and Andy Stanley, and John Maxwell, um, for me, this was like 14, 15 years ago. But I honestly believe that the most defining moment for me occurred in our very first gathering um, at a hotel banquet hall in Orange County, California, the first day of the program. And all of us were introducing ourselves and telling the exciting things we'd have been a part of, ministries and church plants and new worship services and all kinds of stuff like that. And about two-thirds of the way through our introductions of who we were and why we were at this program. Chris Carter was the guy's name from the Deep South. Says this, fellas, I'm in high cotton. I don't even know why I'm here. Here. I don't even know why I'm here. And his attitude was so full of humility. And his outlook was so grateful and bewildered that it changed the year entirely.
because in like one little instance, he took one tiny little pin and just went and popped all of this grandstanding that was kind of happening among, well, I planted two churches in Kansas, and well, I started three Saturday night services at three different churches, and everybody, you know, sharing this thing in this great ministry of serving. And Chris Carter just came along and went, and all of a sudden, it was like all the air got let out of this big puffed up balloon for all of us, and we're like, yes, he's right. And what happened was, it changed our entire year. Instead of grandstanding, we began serving one another. We began babysitting for each other. There were 38 children on this front lawn. We were all in these little townhouse um, apartments. We began meeting with the younger seminary students who were there just to encourage them and hear what God was doing in their lives and what they might be interested in. We began finding ways to serve the faculty when they needed somebody who had been around to, um, to support them whenever we could. We participated in the chapel services, and we um, put together performing groups because a lot of us happened to be musicians. You know, and we did the office parties for some of the departments at Christmas time for the seminary, wherever we could. The meekest, quietest guy in the program set the tone for the entire year. And it was such a defining moment. And here's Paul saying, have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped at. But he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant. Have you ever thought of this? That we worship one who did nothing but go down. We basically worship a homeless guy who got murdered. Like if I were God and I were Jesus you know, the, the second person of the Trinity, and I was coming to this tiny little planet, I'd have at least made myself like prince of a small country. <laughs> so I'd have gotten at least a little homage from somebody. Not like born to peasants and in the middle of nowhere with no money and no nothing. He did nothing but go down in order to serve. This is not upward mobility like we all want. It's downward. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then Paul talks about, think of the heights that he came from. Paul names the height from which Jesus originally came, equal with God, there at the beginning of creation. Through him nothing was made that has been made, John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them tell the Christmas story the way that we know it every year at Christmas. Matthew and Luke. And I have to tell you, we have a guy in our church who grew up in Palestine. He grew up in Bethlehem. Actually, the suburb of Bethlehem is called Betzahur which is the shepherd's fields. And they, he played basketball against the high school in Bethlehem. 
And, and to meet a guy from this place, you know, um, was just outstanding. I'll never forget Ethel Samuelson saying to Joe Musla, oh, you're from Bethlehem. Like, this thing that we sing about and that we just love and that means so much to us is the birthplace of our Savior. And it's real. There's people there. Luke and Matthew tell the story. Luke tells it in about 2,000 words, the birth of the Savior. John tells it in four. The Word became flesh. Mark begins his gospel with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, and John begins his gospel in the beginning, just like Genesis, like from before time was even created. Paul names the height from which Jesus originally came. We can't even comprehend it. When you don't get how high something is, you can't measure how steep the angle down is. We will never understand what Jesus gave up. The depth that he descended, because the spiritual height of Jesus is higher, the depth he descended is lower than any point we've ever been. Death on a torture instrument and abandonment. And it wasn't just a descent like he was on a snowboard, but it was humiliation and death like a free fall. And Paul says Christ did this, though he was infinitely rich, for our sakes he became poor, that we through him might be rich. Not, but not just descent for that complete humiliation. And Paul says, have this attitude. Attitudes are so powerful. The dollars spent to influence our attitudes is in the billions every year. Most of it is aimed at youth, young adults, now is down as, as age seven and eight. They have that much influence on family spending in most families. Most of it is designed to be invisible, to impact our attitudes, so that we don't notice how we're being affected. And you know the famous quote by Chuck Swindoll, don't you? The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. He says, attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. Attitude is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. You've heard, I hope you've heard that before. That's Chuck Swindoll, if you want to look it up. It's in a lot of office buildings. And here's Paul saying, have this same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. A funny quote I heard is by Zig Ziglar. Positive thinking won't let you do anything, 
but it will let you do everything better than negative thinking will. <laughs> let me say that again. Positive thinking won't let you do anything, but it will let you do everything better than negative thinking will. Another one that I heard is Maxie Dunham said, people who believe they can and people who believe they can't are both right. That's how powerful attitudes are. Usually they're both right. People who think they can and people who think they can't are usually both right. That's how powerful your attitude is. And another thing, attitudes are contagious. And this is, I think, um, what's, what made Christianity so appealing in one sense to people. The attitudes that they had. Um, I have a great, uh, heard a great story about a 55-year-old woman traveling by train from Detroit to Chicago. Just west of Kalamazoo, the train broke down. And the conductor, after a long time, uh, came on and and said, there's going to be a three-hour delay. And everybody was getting really mad. <laughs> we'll leave. They were getting heated at the delay, and when they found I was going to be several hours before another train was going to be there, it just got ugly, and the tempers flared. And it was getting um, so ugly, it was almost turning, like, vile, you know? And this was, like, 15 years ago. Not today, where people explode and you know, like on the airline stuff that we're reading about. But then this um, woman, she, she was traveling by herself. She was knitting at the time, began to sing, I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to sing the whole song and Dinah and everybody, but she sang the whole song. Even someone's in the kitchen. And pretty soon... Within moments, everybody started joining in. And the whole environment immediately changed in that train car. And it transformed the people along with it. And that woman's name is Joanne Hook. It was my mom. <laughs> so I know it's true. <laughs> My dad was over at Garrett, actually, and she was riding the train to go meet him over there because it's where she grew up. A positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. <laughs> so here's my question. I would say this when I think of all the churches represented here. Church, attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? How can we Make that so. Is the way we do business catchy? Is the way we worship God contagious, even if it's not slick or flashy or anything? How about our mood or our actions? Is the way that we love and care for the world different enough to be winsome and contagious? In Christian attitudes, Jesus showed us they lead to complete serving. It took me a long time to learn how to serve. I didn't mind setting up stuff, but I hated cleaning up. I would find any excuse to say, I just don't have time for that. But then I realized that the really awesome people are the ones that are willing to stick around and clean up. 
And then you can talk about how it all went, whatever it was. And I, I mean like at a church kind of a thing and putting the chairs away. And The most amazing people are those servers who are willing to say, I'll put the chairs away. I'll help you clean up. How can my not serving make me miss out on God? Exactly that way. You miss out on some of the most amazing people. And here's the deal. It's, it's this way because God loves to serve. God literally threw in the towel. He wrapped it around his waist and wiped his disciples' smelly feet with it. The last night Jesus had with his disciples before he was arrested, I'd have been like giving him my best sermons all at once. What did Jesus do? He tied this towel around his waist. He began washing his disciples' feet. This was the job of the lowest servant in the household. It was a sign of hospitality and humility. Have you ever done a foot washing? It's kind of it's so awkward. I'm doing a wedding next month. Well, I guess it's this month now. And, and the bride and groom are doing a foot washing. And that's very sweet. They have young, beautiful feet. <laughs> but it's kind of embarrassing, really. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. But here's the key. This wasn't some extraordinary act for God. It was right in line with who he is. It was right in line with who he is. Jesus Christ was a servant. He was doing nothing more than expressing the servant heart of God. And that sounds so bizarre to our ears that God is a servant, but that's only because our value system is so corrupt and distorted. We feel comfortable attributing to God those things that we aspire to be, like all-powerful makes him more of what we want. To describe him as all-knowing, once again, reinforces something that we value. To describe God as all-present is not only comforting, but even affirms our personal value. If we want God to be all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present, how many of us would choose to let servanthood be the ultimate expression of that? Isn't the point of being God to be served? It would be for us, but not for Jesus. Jesus said we'd be known for our love, and the greatest expression of love is that we lay down our lives for someone else. Remember John 15, 13. But until we're called to lay down our lives for someone else, the great expression of love is servanthood. And, and this passage in Philippians shows us God is not vague. Christ's humility shows us God is not vague. Aren't you tired of following Jesus in a vague kind of way? Let's get specific. Does God still call people to empty themselves like this? Yes. I'm seeing it at our church in Dexter. And I see it here. And I see it in so many of the stories you're sharing about the good things that you're doing. All because there's so much strength to be found in giving up their lives to the one who emptied himself to come to earth. To be your servant and mine that we could share in every way with him. And he takes it to the cross. I truly believe, and you heard this last night, there's a cure for every spiritual disease in the cross. All the problems we have, the root problem is a spiritual one, isn't it? When you look at everything going on today, we have a spiritual problem. And it's interesting to see people approaching it from a secular humanist point of view, what, what they call it, or how they try to encompass it. 
the underlying angst is really a spiritual problem. And Paul lays out exactly what Christ has come to do and how it's been settled. And Christ is now exalted. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, looking back now in verse 12, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Lee wanted that to be our family's verse with our kids. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Well, obviously the, the big one that I would just want uh, to name is when, when Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is so different than talking about the courage that we're to have in Christ. And a couple things just to point out that helped me um, as I dug into this more. Notice that he's saying, work out your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. So working out your salvation means like living out your salvation. There is room for all of us to grow. Are you being fed and are you feeding others? Are you working out your salvation? Are you living out your salvation? It's, it's simply the natural consequence. James talks about faith without works is a dead faith. So that's a part of it. And, but we're to do it with fear and trembling. And, and the fear, you've probably heard, it's talk, because perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. First John talks all about that. And, and fear is, it, it's not, we're not supposed to hang on to that fearful emotion like the one that tells us to get away from the Mississauga rattler snake. That's only supposed to last us about 10, 10 seconds or as much as you can handle to get away from it. And then we're supposed to let go of the fear because we're out of the immediate danger. Remember how, yesterday when I talked about the psychologist friend that I have that just came to faith in Christ four years ago um, and got his doctorate at University of Michigan, and he says the Bible knows every bit as much as psychology. And this is from the University of Michigan. And, and psychology completely backs up what Scripture says. And Scripture completely backs up what psychology says. And in some areas, like in dealing with resentment, in dealing with forgiveness, Scripture goes way further than, than the clinical psychology studies have, have proven. It was, I, was, I, I wanted that to be true when he's explaining this to me with new eyes, because he, he just came to faith in Christ like seven years ago, four years ago. And I was just going, whew, whew. you know, to hear him say this just with fresh eyes of faith and fresh eyes of understanding and, and just this amazement to it. Um, that's not the kind of fear that Paul's talking about. He's talking about the, the fear, like the healthy kind of respect that you have for certain things. 
fear of being on the edge of a cliff. Give it a little respect and back up. When I think of the places I used to sit and dangle my feet, I just think, oh man, I, I, I can't believe I did that, and I'd chew my own kids out for doing it. Um, fear is, is the idea of, of, of respect for God, putting God first. You know, I don't fear my parents, but I want to put them first. You know, going through a door, helping my mom out, that kind of thing. You know, that's part of, the, of what Paul is meaning. And we talked yesterday, or two, what's today? I can't even tell. When I'm here, like, it all comes. Um, on Monday, we talked about the idea of anything is great as long as God is over it. Anything is great. But, but nothing is great if it's over God. You know, even mother love. Mother love, when it's, it doesn't have God over it, um, can become something else that, that is um, not honoring of God or the child or the mother. Um, that's, there's actually a great illustration of that in the book that I was um, quoting the preface from yesterday, The Great Divorce. Um, there's a woman that's coming from hell to heaven, and she wants to meet her son who died um, when he was maybe a 10 or 15 years old. And she's like, I want to, I'm in heaven, I want to, my, my son's here, right? And the, her brother comes to meet her, and they have this conversation. And he says, um, Pam, yes, you, he is here, and yes, you will see him. You will have him to your heart's content. But first you need to see God. She says, I will not. How could he keep my son from me? And, and, he, and the, the other spirit from heaven who's come to meet her, getting off the bus from hell, says, um, says, you just need to see God, and then all of the love that you have for your son will be yours from now for eternity. You'll get to enjoy him. And, and, but she will not let go. And she said, oh, well, I believe in a God of love. How could God, you know, get in the way of my son? And in this, the, it's so sad, in the end of the conversation, she it becomes clear she would rather drag her son back to, her, back to hell with her so she could smother him and, and have it be what she exactly wants it to be rather than putting God in front of this love that she has for her son. And you see how warped that love becomes. It's such an insightful book. If you want a good summer read, it's not long, but it's all these conversations like that of the people getting off the bus, meeting someone from heaven that they knew on earth. And it's, it's crazy. Um, but I think by the idea of fear and trembling, that's exactly what, um, what he means. And the idea of trembling, um, I don't know the last time you trembled um, where you wanted something so bad. Um, but it, it's an appropriate word. I know when I used to do CrossFit up until a year ago, I would tremble about three times a week because you're doing some exercise and you're like, <sighs> you know, and you just keep going and it's a mind game as much as it is a physical thing. Um, or wanting something so bad that literally you're like shaking with excitement or trembling. Um, 
continue to work out your salvation that way? Could you ask God to want it that bad and to keep him first as you work it out? One other beautiful image that Paul uses here is is when he talks about shining like stars in the universe um, so that you may become blameless and pure. Verse 15, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So he's talking to them about shining like stars, about living in such a way that it, it's actually countercultural. That like people are like, oh, there's something a little different about her. And they might mean it in a good way or might not, depending where they're coming from. But um, I'll never forget, there was um, my second year of seminary, I got a new roommate. And I lived in the old dorm and loved it, the same room for three years. And I got a new roommate my second year and... Um, and he had told me that he had heard I was kind of like a Jesus freak. And I was like, oh, no. And so, like, I went to, I went to the place where I was working, um, uh, a church in um, Bolingbrook, Illinois, and I was having a meal with the pastor and his wife, and I said, I said, oh, yeah, I've got this new roommate, but he said that he heard that I was a Jesus freak. And the um, pastor's wife was named Rita. And she jumped up. She said, oh, son, that's so wonderful. And gave me, like, this big hug. And I was, I was like, and then I'm like, yeah, that's wonderful. But I just was, like, a little freaked out that that's what I got called by somebody at the seminary. <laughs> which, sometimes, which sometimes we called the cemetery. <laughs> And w- but when I went in, there was someone who said, now remember, it's not an angel factory. They're not like producing. Anyways, the, here's the thing about the stars. You know, they're all out there. They're there, but we can't see them, can we? Where, where do you have to go to see the stars the best? Where there's no light. You may be feeling like you are in a very dark place or a very dark time in your life. I think it's always helpful to think of it as in terms of seasons of life. If you can think of your, where you are right now as a season in your life. But I also would just encourage you that, that according to Scripture... Whoa. According to Scripture, we're called to shine in dark places. And the darker the spot might be, the more light you'd give off that someone might be able to see. Imagine nighttime without the stars, which we have so many clouds that's not hard to do. But imagine being that dark. Exactly. Exactly. And God is calling us to be that. And stars don't, like, they don't blind you like the sun does. Has this been better with the shuttered, the shade down? The, um, they don't blind you. 
They bring beauty. They bring a touch of light. They don't overdo it. Um, unless you're up in the UP and there's nothing around. <laughs> and it's just gorgeous. In which you shine like stars in the universe. You know, we think that, that they were clueless during Bible times. But they, they understood the vastness of the universe. They talk about the spheres, you know. The idea that the world was flat wasn't really in their minds at the time. It's been proven in research. That we could shine like stars. And without complaining or arguing, you know, what is it that we argue against? What would be so bad to shine like stars? Let's look at verse, let's move ahead. But verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice, like an Old Testament offering, and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Think of what he's saying. Rejoice with me that I am here in the palace of Caesar, near the palace of Caesar, under house arrest, chained to Roman guards, some of the best of the best, scariest of the scariest Roman guards. And they can't do anything but sit there and listen to me, write letters, dictate letters, visit with Christians, ask them about their lives. Remember the three questions of discipleship? How's your life? How's your walk with Christ? How's your ministry? And Paul's saying, rejoice with me in that. Wow. Now it's neat, because he, he talks about his situation, because Timothy, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul had Timothy that he was pouring into, that he was doing stuff with. It would be my hope that you can find someone, and it might be a kid, it might be a grandkid, it might be somebody um, newer in the faith, that you have a Timothy in your life. And it's so neat how Timothy's now pouring back into Paul. Um, do not go any further without praying for a Timothy, if you don't have someone yet, to speak into their life, just to listen. To not give advice after advice after advice, but to do a little life together. To find a way to serve together. Um, and be, be looking also for your Paul. You know, it's sort of like find a way to be fed and find a way to feed others. Um, every one of us needs to be in that chain. Um, being fed, feeding others. Being a Paul to somebody and being a Timothy somebody. So look for your Timothy, look for your Paul. And then he goes on to say, I'm, 
Timothy's staying with me, but I hope to send him um, soon as I see how things go with me. But in verse 25, he says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. There's kind of a job description for us, to be a fellow, to be a brother or a sister, to be a fellow worker, to be a fellow soldier, to be a messenger, and to take care of people's needs. For Epaphrodites longs, verse 26, for all of you, and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's worried about you being worried that he's ill. Isn't that like my parents' generation? They never, like my dad, my folks, like my mom goes into the hospital for a surgery and she's like, don't come and visit me. You know what I mean? She's like more concerned about my concern for her. And like she is always sending me home with stuff. They live up in Maple City in Leelanau County on a farm. My folks are going to think, my kids are going to think my parents were farmers. They lived there for 25 years. And, and like I went home the last two times with our entire back of our Yukon filled with hostas because she's shrinking her gardens. She has two green thumbs. And, and she somehow has convinced me that I'm doing her a favor. Because she's, you know, she turned 80, she's shrinking her gardens, and I'm doing her this giant favor by taking care of these hassle for her. It's so backwards. And that's kind of, I think, the, the attitude that Epaphrodites might have had. Dites, isn't that what we decided we're going to call him? Dite, Dite. Hey, Dite. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. And Paul clarifies, indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. See, Paul dealt with it too. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. Just a question. Um, uh, we've just got about four minutes left. If these two came to your church, meaning Timothy and Aphrodite, I mean Epaphrodite. <laughs> Aphrodite, that's the goddess of love, isn't it? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> if she shows up, watch out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. If Timothy and Dites came to your church to solve problems, how would you deploy them? How would you deploy them if they came by your church? Is there an area of ministry that you'd want for them to, to tackle? Anybody got one? Conflict. <laughs> you have that in your church? 
<laughs> yeah. You know, they say if you get enough people rowing the boat, there won't be anybody left to rock the boat. I think the way these two must have worked and served, and think of what it meant to travel from one place to another back in those days. Something, just something to think about. Maybe you've got a couple people in your church like that and say, let's tackle a problem together. You know, every organization is perfectly aligned to get the results it gets. How to love the other people. There's a reason Paul wrote these letters. When you look at what the first century churches were dealing with and going through and the cultures that had, were still a part of the, the many kingdoms of God that were called to be when we're the church. Yeah. One other question, just to wrap up, and that is, who are some models of humility and service like these guys? Who are some models of humility and service that you can look up to today? And maybe the follow-up question is, what's What's stopping you from being that for someone else? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you gave up everything. Being worshipped 24-7, knowing all, being all, loving fully and completely. To hit the cliff of the kenosis of emptying yourself for us and for our salvation. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have not left us alone, but that you have called us to be like-minded, that you've called us to be about you, that you've called us to work out, to exercise our faith, to enjoy our faith, to live into our faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would always keep you first. I pray that we would serve, even if it's not in an area we maybe initially expected, that we would do it with humility. Lord, I, we've seen how attitudes are contagious, and we pray that ours would be worth catching only as it reflects yours. And so, God, as we go from here, as we go through the rest of this week, that you'd give us opportunities to serve and to connect with people in such a way that we could help them shine like stars. And God, thank you for the ministry and the service to which you've called us. And when we are in dark places within our souls, within our minds, within our situations, Lord, I pray that your light would be there for us and that you have called us to be light. Thank you for the reminder that the stars are seen most clearly when things are darkest. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, guide us from this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.